I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. Today, we continue a series of messages entitled Wisdom in the Wilderness. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at Satan's origin. Believe it or not, his origin was in heaven. And we looked also at his attack on Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, today, we focus on Satan's attack on Jesus at the beginning of his ministry in the wilderness. And uh, we're also going to look at ways to resist uh, Satan's attack when he brings it against us, as he surely will. By the way, I received a wonderful card this week from uh, Michelle Hunt on our staff and her Joy Choir. And all of those choir members signed the card. And I want to tell you, it warmed my heart. Mount Horeb, we are so blessed by the Joy Choir. And I know you know that. Yeah. The scripture for today, first four verses, Matthew chapter 4. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell those stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. A desperate struggle took place on a hot summer day in South Florida. A 10-year-old boy decided to go for a swim in the creek behind his house, even though his mother had told him, don't swim alone. The boy dove into the cool waters of that creek, not knowing that a hungry alligator was nearby. And that alligator attacked him, clamping down on his legs. The mother was watching from the kitchen window. She ran to the creek and she grabbed the boy's arms and a ferocious tug of war took place. The mother was screaming, and a neighbor heard the screams, came running to the creek with his rifle and shot the alligator. The boy survived, but he had to spend weeks in the hospital. He had awful scars on his legs. But when a newspaper reporter came to the hospital to interview the boy about the attack, the boy bragged about the scars on his arms. They were caused by his mother's fingernails as she clung to him with a desperation empowered by love. 
All of us are like that boy from time to time. We have sometimes foolishly waded into dangerous situations, forsaking the guidance of God and Scripture and people who love us. And we have some scars and brokenness to show for it, don't we? But praise God, He has pursued us into our messes and has held on to us with ferocious tenacity. Today, we continue this series on the devil, Satan, temptation. The devil is the, the lurking enemy. And when we talk about Satan and the devil, some modern people get really uncomfortable because a lot of them don't believe he exists. A lot of them just regard the devil as a comic figure that they talk about on television sometimes or a figment of our pre-scientific imagination. But a person who does not believe in the devil, Satan, the powers of evil, you really have some tough explaining to do. If you don't believe that the devil and his powers of evil exist, then how do you explain the, the so-called Nazi final solution in World War II when they slaughtered six million Jews? How do you explain that apart from forces of evil? How do you explain what Putin is doing right now in Ukraine as he intentionally bombs orphanages and hospitals? How do you understand that if you discount the powers of evil? Tell me how somebody could murder an unborn baby just days before its birthday when the mother's life is not in danger. How in the world can you do that apart from the influence of evil? Tell me how a 50-year-old man can desert a faithful wife of 25 years and leave her and three beautiful children and run off with a secretary half his age. The only way to explain that is by way of the powers of evil. Tell me about where these racist feelings come from, and none of us is immune. Every now and then, one of those feelings sort of lurks in our hearts. Where does it come from apart from the influence of evil? Where do those lustful daydreams come from that occasionally flit across our minds in vivid technicolor? if there are no forces of evil. There's no way to explain those things apart from the powerful force of evil in this world. Now, Jesus came face to face with old Satan at the very beginning of his ministry when the Lord led him into the wilderness to plan with him what his strategy for his ministry would be. And there, Satan met him right away. The area is called the wilderness and if you go to Israel today, you can visit there. You don't want to stay long. It's 35 miles long, 15 miles wide, noted for its blistering heat, barren limestone, hardly anything can grow there. And that's where Jesus encountered Satan. Jesus had been in the wilderness 40 days, and he had been fasting, no food, only water. And so he was famished, of course. Uh, yes, medical specialists tell us you can get along without food for 40 days as long as you got water. 
Uh, modern fasters have demonstrated it, like Gandhi. But if you go that long without food, you are physically and mentally uh, almost incapacitated. And when Jesus was physically weak, Satan tempted him to use his miraculous powers for his own good. And I can imagine Satan whispering to him and say, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And if you don't get yourself some food, how will be you, you be useful for God's purposes later on? You got to eat now. And when I heard this story as a boy and thought about Jesus going 40 days without food, and then I, I imagined Satan saying to him, why don't you just, you've got the power. Why don't you just turn that rock into a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Why don't you do that? And I couldn't imagine how Jesus could resist, but he did. Thankfully, Jesus was able to resist, and he replied to Satan, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in response to each of these three temptations that we'll be looking at over the coming weeks, each one, Jesus turned to Holy Scripture as his first line of defense. That ought to teach us something. It is written, is what Jesus said. And here he was quoting the eighth chapter of Deuteronomy, which tells how when the Israelites, a million of them, were wandering across the desert for 40 years, and they were without food, terribly hungry, God supplied their needs. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus surely knew that the God who supplied a, a million Israelites would certainly take care of his needs too. And we find that in verse 11 of chapter 4. After the temptations are over, the angels came and ministered to Jesus. In thinking about the devil, Satan, we need to avoid two extremes. On the one hand, believing that he doesn't exist. That we must surely avoid. But that is a common uh, facet of American life today. Uh, if you ask the people on the street, most of them would say, ah, that's a myth. But then there's the other extreme. We must not blame the devil for everything. A few years ago in a Tennessee newspaper, and by the way, we've got some guests from Tennessee in the congregation today, and you'll appreciate this. Uh, a sports writer for this uh, newspaper wrote this. It's obvious that the devil got into Neyland Stadium yesterday. No, he didn't. No, it's just that two Southeastern Conference football teams on very even terms fought it out on the gridiron and the Tennessee Volunteers happened to lose. Devil had nothing to do with it. The devil is God's adversary and his, he's attempting to separate you and me from our creator. He is a liar. He is a schemer. And he masquerades as an angel of light. He's great with disguises. And he's stronger than flesh and blood. St. Paul warned us that we struggle against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The devil is real and he's dangerous. But we ought not to blame the devil for everything. Furthermore, God limits the access that the devil has to us. 
In the book of Job, we find that the devil had to get special permission from God to attack the good man named Job. The Lord does not allow the devil to run wild, causing automobile accidents and airplanes to fall out of the sky. Uh, God does not allow Satan to play games with the natural laws of our world. So we don't need to be intimidated by Satan. Indeed, the Bible assures us that the one who is in us, that is Christ, is greater than the one who is in the world. But in the meantime, the devil is dangerous and he's active. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, we read, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That, uh, and therefore, uh, St. Paul has taught us, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, fortunately for us, the devil is predictable. Uh, there are no, no new sins under the sun because the old ones work well. Devil doesn't need to come up with new stuff if his old stuff works. And there are five primary tools in his kit. Money, sex, addictive substances, power, and pride. Those are his five primary tools. And if you're strong in three areas, the devil won't mess with those three. But he'll work on the other two because he is extremely shrewd. A member of one of my former churches sent me an email one time. And it gives a good illustration of, the Satan, of Satan at work. Let me read it to you. She wrote, I was at the bank the other day and the teller mistakenly gave me an extra $100 bill. As I was leaving, I counted the money several times. I must confess that I thought about keeping the money and walking out. Now, as her pastor, let me insert this. Uh, you see, at that moment, the devil was making a sales pitch to her. And this is what he was whispering. Hey, it's the bank's mistake. The bank's a big institution. They'll never miss a measly $100. And who knows? Maybe the Lord's involved in that mistake. Maybe the Lord knows that you could use a little extra cash right now. Now back to her email. She wrote this. I took one more step and then thought of the consequences the teller might face at the end of the day. I went back and returned the money. The teller was bum-fuzzled. I didn't know that word. Bum-fuzzled, but very grateful. I felt good and was praying as I walked out the door. Now, Satan has a standard operating procedure, SOP. I'm going to describe to you the devil's SOP so that you can be on guard. Uh, Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church out in California has uh, described the SOP using four words, each one beginning with the letter D, so it's easy for you to remember. First, 
Satan identifies a desire that you have. I mean a legitimate desire, like food or security or sex or recognition or love. Jesus' need in the wilderness was food. And Satan suggests that you fulfill that legitimate desire in an improper way. And so Satan tempted Jesus, just use your miraculous powers to help yourself instead of just using them for God's purposes and for other people. The second step in the devil's SOP, the devil tries to plant doubt in your mind concerning God and his standards. Notice that Satan began his conversation with Jesus by saying, if you are the son of God, what was going on there? Oh, he was trying to plant a doubt. Are, Jesus, are you sure that you're the son of God? I know you just came through that powerful baptism experience and you thought you heard a voice from heaven saying, behold, this is my beloved son. But did it really happen or did you imagine it? Satan is still trying to get us to doubt that God really knows what's best for us, that he can really meet our needs, the word, that the words of the Bible are really true. He's trying to plant a doubt. The Bible says that all things work together for good for them that love the Lord are trying to fit into his plans. But the devil sneaks up on us and whispers, the Bible says that all things work together for good. Are you kidding me? Think about those two really bad things that happened in your life. How in the world can you believe that they work together for good? The devil is some kind of salesman. The third step in the SOP is when Satan follows up that doubt with deception. And Satan has earned the title, The Father of Lies, he is one slick salesman. He sugarcoats the deal. Like he said to Eve in the Garden of Eden, you won't die if you eat that fruit. In fact, you'll be as smart as God. Temptation usually begins with small compromises. The devil loves to start off small and then build. Like, for example, sharing a slightly off-color joke with a person of the opposite sex. And then next, sharing with him or her some confidential experience. And then next, perhaps sharing a frustration that you have with your spouse. You see, one small step leads to a bigger step. To us, Satan whispers, why should you pay all that money that you're paying in taxes? Only chumps and dummies do that. And you know, the IRS doesn't even have enough employees to return phone calls. How in the world are they going to check up on you? To a young lady, Satan whispers, you really do like that good-looking guy you've been dating, don't you? You know, you better meet all of his needs now or he will surely find another girl who will. To a student, Satan whispers, working for countless hours on a term paper is for dummies only. 
There are hundreds of good term papers online. Just copy one. Save yourself a bunch of work. And that professor will never know the difference. You might get an A. To a young husband who has a simmering disagreement with his wife, the devil whispers, you might have married the wrong person. How can you find out? Well, you know that cute girl at the office, the one who flirts with you from time to time? Have a little fling with her. That'll tell you whether you ought to stick with the marriage or head for an exit. Deception. And Satan's fourth and final step is disobedience. And we give in to Satan's sales job. And what begins as an, as an idea gets birthed into action. The writer James in our Bible warned, Then our evil desires conceive and give birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear friends. Now, that's the devil's SOP, standard operating procedure. We've looked at it. Now, let's look at something even more important, how we can defeat that plan. The good news is the Bible offers us a pathway to win battles, our battles with Satan. And I want to give you the three guidelines for victory. First, beware of vulnerable situations. Beware of vulnerable situations. Recognize those times and places where you're vulnerable, places where you're weak. Beware of times when you're tired or frustrated or hungry or under stress. In the wilderness, Jesus was weakened by hunger and therefore he was vulnerable. Satan loves a cocky Christian. Why? Does he love? Because he knows the Bible is true when it says pride goes before destruction. And King Solomon reminded us that the prudent sees danger and takes refuge. But the simple just keeps going and suffers for it. As a pastor for many, many years, I have learned to worry when someone with an alcohol problem comes up to me and saying, Brother Bill, problem has gone away. I don't need to attend AA anymore. And in fact, I, I'll be able to take a drink occasionally. No problem. I'm not even tempted anymore. Ooh, I have found again and again that that's the prelude to destruction. Young men, be careful when you check into a hotel, turn on the TV and just start flipping channels. A lot of those channels are pornographic. Know your vulnerabilities. Don't stress your weak areas. That brings us to the second guideline for defeating Satan. Stand up to the devil. Stand up to the devil. The devil is a bully, and like most bullies, he's really a coward. Because the book of James tells us, resist the devil, and what will he do? He will flee from you. Never try to argue with the devil. He's shrewder than you are. Never try to negotiate with the devil. He's had thousands of years to perfect his dirty deals. Just say to him, no. Learn to say these powerful words. Satan, 
In the name of Jesus, I reject you. Back off. That country Hall of Fame singer, Randy Travis, became a Christian rather late in his life, and his early life was rather sordid. And in his autobiography, he wrote, he offers this testimony. He wrote, when Satan tries to bring up things from my past and hurl them in my face or tie me up in guilt and shame, I simply remind him that I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And then I say to him, Satan, in the name of Jesus, take your hands off me. I don't belong to you anymore. Jesus bought and paid for my soul, and I belong to him. Third guideline for defeating Satan. Ask God for help. Sounds so obvious, doesn't it? Ask God for help. St. Paul assures us that God will hear our prayer and offer a path by which we can overcome the temptation. He wrote this, St. Paul wrote this, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. I love those words. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. It's as if when we're tempted, God says to us, his children, look, I'm going to insert as much of my omnipotent power into your life as needed to steady your nerves, to revive your courage, and to strengthen your sagging knees. Never is my power brighter, stronger than when mixed with your weakness. So don't give up. Ask for help. And thankfully, God has a 911 system that operates 24-7. Through the psalmist, God extends to us this invitation. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. And brothers and sisters, part of God's help comes from your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why Sunday school and worship are so important. We are told in Scripture, bear one another's burdens. We are supposed to be spiritual lifeguards for each other. Only God knows how many ditches that I have been able to avoid because people prayed for me. God's help always comes, but it doesn't come early. And it doesn't come late. He is an on-time God. The great, the late great Dutch Christian, Corrie Ten Boom, in one of her books, told about an experience she had when she was a little girl. One day, it occurred to her for the first time that her father, her beloved father, was likely to die before she did. And that terrified her because she could not imagine life without him around. So... In tears, she went to him and told him what was breaking her heart. Her father took her in his arms and he said, Corey, you remember how on Saturdays you go with me by train to Amsterdam? She said, yes. He said, when do I give you the ticket to get for, for that train ride? She thought a moment and said, why, it's just before I get on the train. He said, that's the way God is, too, with his children. The help we need is given to us, not early, 
not late. Right on time. And so he will provide the help you need for that moment you're worried about. Not early, not late, right on time. Recently, television did a documentary on the great German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, Bonhoeffer was part of the original confessing movement within the German Lutheran Church. Um, during World War II, he was part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. But the plot was discovered and failed. And indeed, the Gestapo executed Bonhoeffer just a week before the end of the war. There's a powerful moment in this documentary when Bonhoeffer is waiting on the Gestapo to arrive. He knows they're coming to arrest him. No need to try to run because he can't get away. And so he waits with a few of his friends. And as he waits, he shares with them a message he gave to his co-conspirators in the assassination plot. The previous Christmas, he had written to them these words. I believe that in every trial, God will give us as much strength as we need to resist. But he does not give it in advance. And Bonhoeffer was right. Because that day, when the Gestapo finally arrived, God had already been there. And his grace was sufficient. And so he will be for us. If we just trust him. St. Paul gave us these great words. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And the late great preacher Gardner Taylor. Used to remind us. To repeat frequently. That great assurance. God is faithful. Say to yourself when all hell rises against you. God is faithful. Repeat it when all earthly help has failed and friends have walked away. God is faithful. Whisper it in sickness and in sorrow. God is faithful. This is what God says to whoever and whatever it is that stands against you, God's child. You strike and I will protect. You hurt and I will heal. You slander, and I will glorify. You embarrass, and I will honor. You pull down, and I will lift up. You curse, and I will bless. You block the path, and I will provide a highway. You close the door, and I will open it. You muddy up my child, and I will clean him up until he stands in the spotlessness of my own righteousness. God is faithful. Say it slowly and out loud with me now. God is faithful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee.
Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen.